beauty as a quality of experience can be a kind of signal to where discernment wants to start, where attunement is already facilitated by the values I have without my even knowing that I have them. All right, then, here we are back, 2023. Welcome to Voicecraft. In this episode, Forrest Landry, a philosopher, master craftsman, and among the very rarest of minds, joins the dialogue for the second in the Voicecraft podcast series on the commons, the first being episode 71 with Michelle Bowens. Forrest has spoken on the podcast before in dialogues with John Vaveki and Alexander Bard, and otherwise you can find his work at mflb.com. I thoroughly recommend that. He's got many unique and profound writings, and you can find links to those in the show notes. Now, following this release will be two events, one open session with the Voicecraft Network and another locally in Melbourne in the first Voicecraft Live of 2023, both of which are titled Commons and the Sacred. To future listeners, or those listening right now, you can check out voicecraft.io slash events or sign up to the mailing list at voicecraft.io to stay in touch with what's going on. There's lots to check out and many opportunities associated with this project. Wishing you all very well. Here we go. It's lovely to be back here with you, Forrest. In this conversation, we're going to be addressing the topic of the commons. And so if I speak about the commons and ask you what its meaning and significance is, how would you begin to speak about it? Well, I, I have this maybe romantic notion. I begin by sort of reflecting on where that term I have, what I believe to have come to been its, its usage. Sort of a medieval sense of you have village and people living in the village and then maybe a road that goes some number of miles and maybe another village. And, the, and, and there's a lot of woodland in between. And so in effect, there's there's some spaces which are not part of one village and not part of the next village, not part of one homestead or one farm and not part of the next. It's all of the woodlands that would be outside of the spaces that had been domesticated. Um, and so in effect, there would be occasions in which people would make use of that as a resource. You know, there might be people that would go out into the woods and collect firewood for their homes to, to, to have fire. And how that space that isn't part of any person's household, how that is managed and what that area and that resource is. Um, it, it, that, that to me became kind of like the first exemplar of what the commons is. Um, and so when I, when I hear the word commons, I, I sort of just have this visual impression of, of a woodlands that isn't necessarily um, far away from humanity, but isn't it isn't tame either. It's still it's still more or less itself. Um, and so, so in this sense, if if we're generalizing a little bit, we we would say that the commons was essentially those things which are not necessarily the purview of any specific person. And um, in in order to really clarify what that means, I need to to, to clarify a little bit about 
on what basis am I even thinking about this? So when I think about reality, I think about choice, change, and causation. And the, the key one in this particular case is choice. If I'm looking at a, a community of people, or I'm basically looking at an employee with a business, within a business, um, you know, the, the, the context of the environment, the context of, 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 of any situation where there's a bunch of people, there's a lot of stuff going on. And so in effect, there's a lot of choices that need to be made, right? There's, there's, there's the response of the community to all the things that are happening in the community. And so in effect, when we think about things like ownership and market process and so on and so forth, it's like a, it's an abbreviated conversation that would have otherwise have had to had, have, that we would have otherwise needed to have had about who makes what choices about what, when, where, and why. And so in effect, there's a, to think of this, this, this stream of choices coming in and there's just way too many choices that need to be made that, that, that no one person can make all the choices. So you want a partitioning schema of some sort. You want something that says, okay, we wanna sort all of these incoming choices into buckets and to do, do so really quickly. And you know that bucket, that person will handle and this bucket, that other person will handle. And so in effect, when we're, when we're thinking about the commons, we're thinking about those things for which you don't have a bucket for an individual person, you have a bucket for which a collection of people would need to respond, right? Because, you know, when we think about ownership, for example, we're using it as a proxy for that conversation about who makes which choices about what things, when, where, how, and so on. So the, the, the notion of ownership is a kind of boundary that allows for really fast sorting of choices. And so in this sense, um, things that are not sorted into individual family, right? So we might have a collection of families or individuals that quote unquote own that resource. If it's, if it's not something that's owned privately, then it's public. And so the administration of choices about the public spaces is, um, you know, it's, 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 it's first of all, the notion of public now has meaning based upon how we think about choice. And the ways in which we make choices with respect to the commons now in effect is treated as a kind of group process, a kind of public process. So it's hard for me to think of the notion of commons without thinking about the notion of choice and the boundary or, or separation of what is public and private. And that itself resting upon the notion of um, ownership, which itself is a, is a way of thinking about choice. Um, and so when we're, when we're thinking about commons in, in, in the broadest sense, we're basically saying, well, what if we weren't making as many assumptions about what's public and what's private? Like, what if we just said, okay, the commons would be all of the things for which choices need to be made collectively. Um, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to presuppose the notion of ownership in order to think about how to sort choices. Um, you know, there's, there's been uh, obviously a lot of people have thought about governance and broadly speaking, there's quote unquote two categories, which I, I actually really disagree with this notion, but most people would say, well, there's, there's democracy and then there's essentially some form of socialism, which effectively might as well be a dictatorship. And, you know, well, we know dictatorships are bad because you're basically signing all choices to one person or their, their immediate delegates, right? You have a hierarchical system of, of okay, well, 
any choice that one person wants to make, they get to make. But if they don't want to do it, then they'll hand it off to some tax collector or policeman or whoever the head of security is, or just, you know, there's, there's a sense of the hierarchy itself is treated as a kind of way of sorting all the choices of that, that country, basically. So, you know, in this sense, there's a, there's a sort of notion that if, 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 if we take the history of governance as has been described to us so far, you would think that either you had public private property boundaries and that the commons would be just done by the democracy, or you have some sort of socialism and that that's the only other way to do it. And, and, and I actually disagree with that, that whole way of thinking. Um, but to describe an alternative to that actually requires quite a bit of effort because then we need to start thinking about a third position. So rather than thinking about individual and state or institution, which encompasses everything, we have this middle notion of community and how does community make choices differentially than institutions would make them or individuals would make them. And at first it seems like, well, that just seems like a technicality, but it turns out that as you explore the concept a little bit, the notion of commons and community actually fit together really, really well. And so in that sense, it's, it's, it's not so much that the commons is the public space, it's the community space. So in effect, rather than having this hard boundary between things that are strictly privately held and things that are strictly publicly held and therefore part of an institution, you know, the king in the medieval sense would be the person that administered the commons, so to speak. But in the, in the modern world, we have this notion of community as being a way to make choices at moderate scales that doesn't necessarily get caught in the issues and problems that are associated with private ownership or uh, in this particular case, uh, socialism as everything is made public and nobody has anything. Um, and, and the world is very familiar with all of the issues associated with both private ownership and hyper-individualization associated with you know, countries like the United States and the um, hyper-socialization associated with, well, basically look at China and Russia for, the, for, for you know, quote unquote quintessential examples. And so in this sense, uh, to have an alternative about how we even think about the commons actually becomes kind of important to have the conversation. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So I thought as a way to lead into the next question, I could share a little bit about some of the ways I've been thinking about commons, just in terms of a couple things and see what you think about it. Because I have found a use for the concept as something that um, has more of a metaphysical basis. Now, of course, I understand what you're saying. It's very much coming and informed by a metaphysical basis. But what I notice is, and in previous conversations I've had about this as well, um, terms like socialism, capitalism, democracy, or variously systems of political economy become one of the domains that the concepts used in. Very, very important, of course, and, and, and necessary to engage with. But when we think about something like language and communication and the manner by which we share and influence and co-inform and cultivate that context, that field of interaction, there's a sense in which there's, there's, a, there's a 
very much a, a deep similarity and a, and a sameness to what we're speaking about. And I've found that to be, from a phenomenological perspective, a profoundly helpful lens. And so I could say more things about that. And as you know, a lot of my work is about developing contexts for communication. I'm curious as to how you'd think about communication in the context of commons and whether or not that might feed into the extrapolation of your thinking about the term in general. Oh, I feel very strongly that you're agreeing. I mean, it, it, it seems there's there's a strong congruence, in, at least as I'm experiencing it, right? There's there's the sense of language as being shared. Nobody owns the language. And it's not an institutional thing either, right? You don't have, um, I mean, maybe France has a kind of, this is what we're going to make French like. But English, for example, is kind of this hodgepodge of all the stuff that comes together. And so, you know, there's no authoritative body that's going to decide a word means this, doesn't mean that, and so on. So in effect, uh, language and art and music and, you know, the kinds of things that become narratives that hold a community together. And I need to be a little careful when I'm saying art particularly or music particularly, because a lot of times the artist is going to feel that they have some sense of propriety or ownership of the intellectual property, so to speak. But language itself is a much better example of commons because it is inherently a between thing and it's held by communities. Like culture, for example, is not something that any person owns. And it doesn't, it doesn't belong to an institution either. Of course, any number of people in institutions would like to pretend that they are the keeper of the, of the commons or the keeper of the, of the culture. But I think that there is a huge amount of overlap between the notion of commons and the notion of community and the notion of culture that in effect, they are, they're of the same kind. They're of the same class of metaphysical concept, so to speak. And by metaphysical, I'm just simply saying, you know, to some extent, not an object I could point to. Like, I, I can't point to language. It's not a thing in that sense. But, uh, you know, it, 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 that word of meta being beyond physical is, is, is not really trying to point to anything new agey or anything like that, or even academic. It's just, it's just merely mentioning that there's a kind of virtuality associated with the concept. So, I think my first just sort of notion is like just the complete acceptance of what you're suggesting. Right. And so as a, as a, you know, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. So for the last few years, when I've been thinking about, for instance, a triple of um, commons, the market and the state, I've been thinking as one way to sort of grapple with it, that the commons, and, you, and I'm curious about this, the commons might be understood in terms of anti-rivalry, the market as the, right as the right sort of place for rivalry, and then the state in terms of non-rivalry. I could say a little bit about that. I mean, there's a sense in which, obviously, from the perspective of language and the energetic context that we participate in. I, I, I think it's good, actually. First of all, just, just even having said... Uh, rivalry for market, uh, anti-rivalry for community and non-rivalry for state. Um, that makes sense to me. I, I, I feel like just straight up, that sounds correct. Right. Um, to, to, to clarify uh, some of the language that I might bring into space so that uh, as, as conceptual tools, other, other triples that, that to my mind feel aligned with what you're describing. 
Um, so I, I work a lot with the triple of um, nature, humanity, and machinery. And so in, in this sense, nature would be the commons. Humanity would be uh, basically the, the, the notion of how we hold the, the, the notion of culture and community, for example. And uh, machinery would be all the systems, i.e. things like the state or things like um, technology, for example. So in that sense, from my perspective, from an, from an axiom two perspective drawn directly out of the metaphysics, we would say, well, there is a flow in the sense that humanity depends upon nature, right? And, 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 and that's a dependence on, it shouldn't be an extraction from. So in other words, humanity currently treats that nature would be something that it could just use as a, the word resource, for example, is actually a very uh, arrogant kind of heuristic to start with, right? It's like saying, well, I'm gonna think of nature as being a non-living thing that I could just go out there and grab whatever I want. And of course, you know, to some extent, you can't be too adamant about it because animals for the most part will, will eat plants and, and, and will drink the water and so on and so forth. And obviously nobody's paying, the animals aren't paying each other for that. But then in their own bodies, you know, the heart doesn't necessarily find the lungs or transact in some sense there. It's like, there's just an organic system. But the relationship that humanity has to nature is not one of reciprocity. It's one of, of just taking. And so I, I find myself kind of uncomfortable with the imbalance of that. Yeah. Um, then you have humanity basically being the substrate upon which machinery depends. And again, we have this hubris to think that the machinery is going to continue to serve us and that every machine that we make is is going to be providing to us. And that's just not so. I mean, it's, it's, it's already the case. Most people have noticed that industrialization and large institutions, whether they be businesses or governments or even academic stuff, certainly medical, is, 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 is very much in the space of taking resources out of humanity and putting them into, well, institutional forms, which effectively mean dollars and bank accounts, cryptocurrencies and things like that. So there's a sense here in which humanity is providing life to machines and the machines aren't alive. So they don't really care for the life. They just take the, the, the patterns and the atoms and, and the, the bits that some market thing has designated as being valuable temporarily. And there's no feedback. There's no support from machinery to nature. And there needs to be, right? Because right now machinery is polluting nature. Humanity is polluting nature. And so there's, there's a sense of highly unequal balances and some of the flows being in the wrong direction. Right? Ideally, what we would have is, is, well, first of all, that nature is supporting humanity and not necessarily humanity just taking from nature, i.e. that that's a little cleaner. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with humanity serving machinery, but again, you don't want to have it to be at the cost of the human, right? So having, you know, bots on the internet convince you to give away all your money to some political campaign is not actually in service to the citizen. It's not, a, it's not in service to the human. So in this sense, in the same sort of way that we've taken from nature, machinery is now taken from the human. And this of course doesn't end well, but in that same sense, that we could have it be that the relationship between nature and the human, although somewhat asymmetric is still reasonable, 
You can have the flow from the human to the machine still be reasonable. And to have the flow from the machinery to nature now actually be the reason that the machinery exists. So if, if it's not going to serve us, have it serve the wild, have it serve the organic world. Because if it does that, then there's more nature to support humanity and humanity can be more available to, to do the, to, to make the things that clean up the pollution, to make the world more vibrant. Like rather than just doing desalinization for the population of a city, I'd love to see two or three extra desalination plants to pump water into the middle of the desert and turn it into a, a rainforest, basically. And that would make the whole world healthier, right? Can we turn the Sahara Desert back into a green space? Well, actually, there's nothing preventing us from doing that. With technology, we could basically make a few extra mountains, just a bunch of skyscrapers, really. And that directs the, the airflow so that the moisture collects a little more. And now you've got rainfall as an actual possibility, seeded a little bit with um, some sort of you know, good design as far as um, landscapes that have water retention features. And, and, that, and now all of a sudden you start to have like a space that can produce new crops um, or just let it be wild. I mean, frankly, the oxygen would be worthwhile. So there's a sense here in which just in the triple of nature, humanity, machinery, that we can see that same dynamic occurring of where things can be rivalrous, where they should be anti-rivalrous and where they can be non-rivalrous, right? The machinery is going to be non-rivalrous. The, the humanity, well, largely speaking, we tend to be rivalrous with one each other, and, but, but, but nature wants to be anti-rivalrous. It wants to be, um, you know, the kinds of robustness that basically means that even in variation of, you know, season and and uh, drought and, and, and monsoon and all the rest of the stuff that it's still it's still healthy. So that, that sense of robustness is, 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 is again now showing up in this other triple. Um, I, I'm sorry I'm going on so long. I, I, let me introduce the other triple and then I'll stop. Uh, I, I work with the triple of sustainability, evolution, and consciousness. And again, these are overlapped triples, right? So for instance, when we're looking at the marketplace, we're seeing a kind of evolutionary dynamic, right? Where we create new products, we try to solve problems. You know, there's, there's things that are developmental that happen in the marketplace. The marketplace is treated as a kind of uh, system for evolving new inventions, new, new, new things that are maybe useful to humanity. But the, the thing is, is that the monetary system entangles both the the community process, i.e. sustainability, which would be um, clean air, clean water, healthy food, um, shelter, communication, and medicine. And so in effect, if, if you make those things which are necessities of life, uh, subject to you know, artificial constraints due to scarcity, because the only tools you know to solve problems are marketplace tools, then you're not doing sustainability very well. And similarly, if you take the system to try to basically figure out how to solve problems in the space of conflict among individuals or corporations, contract law issues or fiduciary law issues or you know, some sort of congressional thing or uh, constitutional law, basically, that there's a, there's a situation where you need to have 
a way of selecting for those sort of critical choices, i.e. people's lives are on the line, what is genuinely the best choice, right? So there's kind of, in the sense that evolution represents perfect changefulness, right? Evolution is about change and meta change and higher orders of change as evolution progresses. And sustainability is a kind of an absence of change. If it's changing, then you know, you're not talking about sustainability, you're talking about something that is other than that, basically. And these are just almost tautologies. So between change and changelessness, you need something that is a kind of conscientiousness to select for this circumstance. Do we emphasize sustainability or do we emphasize evolution? Um, and this isn't something you can automate. Right? If, if, you, if you were to create a algorithm to pick in that situation, um, you'll quickly discover that an algorithm is itself a fixed thing. And so in that sense, it's, a, it's, a, it's already a kind of presupposing of the conclusion that sustainability is the be all and end all. But on the other hand, if you make the algorithm self-adapt and you, know, you get some sort of AI system and so on and so forth, then it'll emphasize the hell out of the evolutionary kind of thing. And that evolution won't include you. It won't include what we would consider to be organic life. And so, you know, that which does not support life won't live for very long. And so in, in, in this sense, we don't want to have a world that's made of machines. So we, we need to actually have human consciousness in the place of governance, not technology. But the entanglement of the monetary system would, first of all, if you have people who are really successful at making evolutionary process work, then you know, you, you, you have that effectively decide what happens in sustainability space. You have one person with a mansion and everyone else living on the street. Whereas if you have the financial system and the inventiveness entangled to the justice system, you know, what, what, what I would call the conscientiousness function, then again, it favors the evolutionary thing, but at the cost of any amount of reconciliation of things that actually matter. So in this sense, you know, that same sort of way we're, 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 we're noticing that the way in which rivalry, anti-rivalry and non-rivalry show up is, 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 is crucial, right? I can have rivalry in the business world, but I want anti-rivalry in the sustainability world, right? I want that to be healthy and robust, families to actually be in healthy communities in a healthy planet. And the non-rivalry wants to be happening at the, at, the, at the sort of conscientious level because, you know, it's not that evolution and sustainability are against one another. It's that you need both in order to have life. So there's, there's a sense here in which these triples interlock. And by understanding the constellation of the triples simultaneously, and this is where you get into that. I, I, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that, 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 that other minds can do, but my mind can do this really well, which is to hold these triples in conjunctions with one another and to gain insights about the nature in which we can understand governance and business and humanity better, um, more sustainability better, for example, or the ways in which nature, man, and machinery need to interact, right? There's a, there's a sense in which we can now start to clarify questions about how do we make choices in these spaces of what is effectively becoming increasingly broken systems in the world? The, 
the marketplace process that we currently have can't make choices about the long term because it's based upon evolution. It doesn't have sustainability as even an aspect of it, right? No marketplace can really account for anything that happens more than maybe a dozen years away. But for example, the um, AI or AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence safety risk is that it won't kill you today, but it'll kill everybody in a few hundred years. And that the process that's driving that is inexorable. And so in effect, we have to not do the, the bad thing, even though in the short term, it looks great. Right? From the business cycle point of view, this looks like it would be awesome. But from a reasonable sense of long-term, long-term meaning organic health long-term, not artificial machinery takes over the world long-term, which is essentially a bad outcome. That is catastrophic risk, actually. Like in the sense, everybody dies and we don't get uploaded into some you know, utopian fake world, right? Um, I, you know, when I hear people presenting ideas as if that sort of transhumanism has any possibility of actually working, it's like, you guys are crazy. It's, just, it's, it's, it's an actually ridiculous notion. And, um, you know, proving that of course takes a little bit of, of effort, but it's worth doing if there's doubts about this sort of thing. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, let me say one or two short things here and then pass it back over to you. So the word resource is an interesting word because so often it is used in the context of how can I get those resources to do this? And it, it often is instrumental in that regard and can tend toward extraction in the context you mentioned. But if we slow down and this is using language in some, so we had a conversation as a, as a community the other month and it was with a woman named Laurel Erica and her purpose in the world she sort of sees herself as a kind of fairy godmother energy trying to tune up language in the sense of invite people to recognize the how language can be beautiful and she didn't mention this word but that that context is is present in my mind and i hear slowing down and thinking resource in a sense that feels a lot more like rejuvenation in a sense that feels like the kind of returning to the well for spiritual process and drinking that water and appreciating in some sense that I suppose would be an essence of sustainability that one participates with that makes possible the ongoingness of appreciating life. And so the reason I'm saying this is because it seems to me as though there are experiences, there are moments, there are contexts in which we can come to recognize what it is to maybe interact in relationship, what it is to be in dynamic touch with the world that is, that fits in a way that, that seems reciprocally beautiful, right? reciprocally amazing. <laughs> and that shift in how we bring consciousness to language and communication and how that can reorient perspective seems to me a really worthwhile element to consider in the context of the kind of basis that supports community and supports the co-creation of that sustainable context and so 
when it comes to from a with a sense of spirit with a sense of the wonder that is even though there's a sense in which the soul can be understood or if you'll if you'll allow it the soul can be understood as as denoting some essential unicity which from another angle might be felt at times like a kind of aloneness the wonder is that we can reach out and we can know and be with others on the way and in that sense we can participate in contexts that make possible insolment and enculturation through that process and so in the context of really profoundly critical systemic issues like AI risk as an instance of this misappropriation of the value of the commons in right process. What I wonder about as well is, maybe I'll ask it like this, what role does beauty in the sense of wonder in the sense of the openness that the kind of experience of beauty with others can afford that becoming more conscious of how we are entangled where we might instead want to recognize a more of a involvement in sustainable process. You see what I'm, I'm trying to include some way of, I, one thing I seem to return to doing is in what way can this more phenomenologically affective language offer a inroad and a weaving connection with the criticality of systemic pattern? Because I know you, Forrest, as someone who speaks from a depth of profound care um, and it, it comes very much I mean it's you know the inside out perspective is there and the outside in perspective is there and so what role can communities can efforts toward creating context that affords the broader coming to consciousness about these issues what can that look like how can how can we do that? These are questions I'm always asking and taking them with massive humility because it proceeds in some important sense in one moment, in one relational context to the next. And I can only be with souls on the way as appropriate as I can in that context. Now, of course, that's not the only thing going on. We, we share transmission and we, we, in some sense, project things into the future and, and all of this. And so it's, it's not only about the moment insofar as one values something like text or the home one can build that is presumed to provide some measure of security from the elements for some number of years. But it's that openness to be in presence with that consciousness about what is common to us as organic life that is the source of value itself. It feels like there's a that it feels like there's a doorway of perception that can be that can be settled into 
you know, and so that's where I'm kind of coming from. And I just wonder how you reflect about that and and maybe if you how you feel that might or might not be relevant in the context of communicating about the value and importance of the commons. Well, if I, first of all, I appreciate you saying all that, but I, if, if I were to, to, to sort of just start off as to what I hear is kind of the essential question. One, one notion or one way of expressing the question that I, that I felt resonated pretty well was how does the concept of beauty or the way in which we can recognize the, 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 the sort of inner value of something, how does that help us in processing or working with very difficult community level issues? And you know, I'm treating AGI as, as you are in the, in the sense of being an exemplar of a very difficult problem, right? You know, what, what do we do kind of problem? And so it might seem to most people in say a rationalist sort of perspective that there would be no relationship, but I, I actually agree with you. I, I, I see a direct relationship. I see a very important relationship. So when I'm considering what is the role of values like beauty, a number of things come to mind, which I actually find to be quite essential. So I'm gonna articulate that a little bit. One of which is that in the sense that any amount of intellectual process, and you mentioned care, which I really appreciated, you know, the, the intellectual process can take you from a place to another place, but whether or not that place that you're going is where you wanna be is gonna come up to some sort of care statement. It's gonna come up to some sort of, I wanna be here, right? And so in, in a sense, when we're talking about values from a, a purely utilitarian perspective, there's this assumption that there's some sort of logic that's gonna answer the question of why I care. But any answer to the why question in association with things like love and with care is ultimately gonna come up empty. You can have care without knowing a reason for why. And so in effect, there's a, there's a kind of attunement that wants to happen. There's a kind of discernment that wants to happen. It's not so much that reason is gonna be the answer to the question. It's, it's like, if, I, if I'm trying to figure out what do I care about, asking the why questions isn't necessarily gonna be an answer to a what question fundamentally. It's the wrong kind of question. If I need to answer a what question, I actually have to ask what questions. Asking and answering why questions is not gonna get you to an answer to what, any more than it's gonna get you an answer to how, right? So in this sense, I'm, I'm gonna just leave how aside, but I'm also similarly gonna leave why aside and just focus on what. But to know what something is, is a kind of discernment. It's a kind of process of attunement that goes on both within oneself and in one's relationships and to this, hopefully to some extent in the other. And so, you know, noticing what do we value? What do we care about? What do we love? Those are all fundamentally what questions. And again, we can't have a why answer to those questions and have those things remain care and value and love, right? I mean, there's just, there's some really basic fundamental reasons about why this is constructed this way. And it doesn't have anything to do with my opinion. But it does have to do with the kind of process that I would use to get to 
essentially the feelings underneath the reasons I have opinions in the first place. So there's, there's a sense in which beauty as a quality of experience can be a kind of signal to where discernment wants to start, where attunement is already facilitated by the, by the values I have without my even knowing that I have them. And so in, in this particular sense, if I'm, if I'm trying to solve a problem with another person, so say there's a community, there's a bunch of people, they're all trying to solve a problem together in some sense, because they have to, they can't do it. No person can do it by themselves. I mean, you know, they, they, they might have enough asymmetry that some person believes that they can, but ultimately nobody's able to do very much in this world with just one body, right? So, so in this sense, some amount of cooperation is happening, whether it's, it's noticed or not is another question. And there's a, there's, a, there's a notion here that if I'm wanting to do the kinds of problem solving that is a kind of process that involves a, a community dynamic, then I, then I need to not just treat the conversation as uh, some sort of logical exchange to try to identify uh, where mistakes might have been made in one or another person's thinking. It's more along the lines of, do we, do we not just me, but us together, even know what we care about? So in that sense, there's a, a, a reflexiveness that is happening internally, externally, inward. I'm distilling in myself, what do I care about? I'm learning those values that that other person has. And that acts as a mirror for me to help me to know what values I have, because it's like, as soon as they mention I value X, it's like, oh yeah, actually, now that you mention it, I do too, right? And there's, there's a sense in which we can build on one another's discernments through a quality of attunement. And so you might, you know, someone, someone that's listening to this might say, you know, if they're coming from a particularly rational perspective, it's like, oh, that sounds all weird. But, but, but actually, if you don't know what you care about, you don't know what you're doing reason on. And moreover than that, it's, it's, it's actually about trust. Like if I'm noticing that the the, the, the discernments of the values are in my attunement with you. I'm noticing that you're coming from a place of, of, of you know, very short-term focus, very me focus and not other focus. Um, you know, the kinds of things that, that, that some people might do trust hacking and say, well, I care about the birds and the trees, but when you look at what they actually do, it doesn't show up that way. Um, there's, there's a sense in which through the quality of my discernment and attunement, I can assess the quality and, and, and attunement and discernment that you have. And through that, I can essentially learn that a person has a depth of awareness of what matters that I could relate to. And if I notice that you're really, really discerning about something, I'm going to basically be like, first of all, wanting to, to come into resonance with that because it's gonna help me to learn more about what actually matters. And secondly, it's going to engender trust. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a fundamental thing here that, you know, if, if, if the people don't trust one another, then, then the problem solving skills ain't gonna matter because, you know, a person might come up with some logical answer and they say, hey, I have argument X, Y, and Z for such and such being true. But unless you're like equally smart to trace every step of that thing, and even then you don't know from which, whether those premises are true, whether there were other arguments, you know, maybe you overlooked some step 
like the other person basically constructed this really clever way to do divide by zero and turn it into a proof of one equals two. Okay, now, I'm not making this up. There are, you can find this on the internet. Like there's a proof that one equals two. If you ignore the fact that divide by zero is an illegal step, right? So, so unless, you know, you have trust, you're not really gonna believe that that person's argument makes sense because there could be some flaw like that you just have overlooked. If you have some, some thing in the argument where there's a, a, uh, a, a statement that's, that's part of the proof that just doesn't have any, any truth value to it, then the rest of the proof isn't gonna have truth value either. But it can be really hard to see that. So in effect, I'm gonna be more interested in conversations where I know where the come from is and the choice making that the person's making so that when we're evaluating an argument, we're evaluating it together rather than each of us competing against one another to see who could fake out who else. Um, and, and so in a sense, it's like, it's easier for me to trust another person to some extent because I can see the attunement with which they, they operate. I can see the level of discernment with which they operate. I can experience that in a firsthand sense and therefore know what they care about and feel the alignment of that care and therefore feel that there's a sense in which we're working on a problem side by side rather than fighting out the, the now contest being a new problem. So in, in, in this sense, I, I, I personally find that um, the skill of attunement is a precondition for trust. And where does the skill of discernment come from? Where does the skill of attunement come from? Well, hopefully it came from your relationship with whatever parental figure you had when you were growing up, but it may also have come from an actual experience of nature that is beautiful, right? There's, there's a sense here in which the, uh, the, the, the unconstrained, the untamed, right? I, I, I was in a conversation with someone the other day and they basically had a notion that wildness meant flailing around without control. And it's like, no, if I take a picture of, of woods and it's wild and there's, you know, foxes and stuff running around in there, they're not just flailing around, they're, they're doing their thing, right? It's not, it's, it's the tree's doing its thing. It's not, it's not just all of a sudden blowing up or blowing over or anything like that. It's, it's got its own integrity, but it's not controlled by humans. It's not controlled by something which is an ownership relationship. It's not controlled by domestication. It's fully and completely itself. It's fully, completely sovereign. And in that sense, we mean wildness as sovereignness. And so in this sense, when you encounter like a highly coherent sovereign being that is truly sovereign and truly coherent and truly itself. God, I can't even think of a single example in which I wouldn't say that is really, really beautiful. Like, I don't know, think of a woman who is just completely, totally in her total self-possession, like, like absolutely, thoroughly her own being. How's that not beautiful? I mean, it, it, it almost doesn't matter what else is going on, right? And so, you know, when we think about domestication, we're talking about things that are forces of sameness and commonness and evenness and so on and so forth, but it's not commons, right? It's just, it's, it's the lowest common denominator, but it's not commons in the sense of 
that which is beyond the constraint of a single person, right? So if I want to know something about discernment and attunement, I'm going to gain skills with that by recognizing beauty, right? Beauty becomes a way in which I notice that I can have the skill of discernment, right? And so in this sense, there's a, there's a kind of irony that, that the people who encounter beauty tend to try to possess it. They try to grab it. They try to take control of it. And um, well, I don't know. I can make the observation that if you do that in a relationship with something or someone that's beautiful, it ain't gonna last. And so there's a sense here in which to really become skillful in discernment is to actually become skillful in preserving beauty. Right, to nurture beauty, to, to in a sense do that. And, and in, in that particular sense, you do it not by constraining the other person through some sort of logic or trying to constrain nature through some sort of machine process. At best, you can use it as a facilitation for it to remain in sovereignty, right? So there's, there's, there's a notion here of how do we make good choices, right? I mentioned governance earlier and I basically was saying something along the lines of that it's how we make choices as a community, how we make choices together. Well, how do we know that we've made good choices? Like what does good governance mean? Now I could spend maybe a few hours really to, to describe with clarity what the fundamental notion of good governance is. But I could give you a litmus test. If the outcome of the governance doesn't result in thrivingness and that sense of wild beauty that I was mentioning earlier, it ain't good governance, okay? You can know it from its outcomes in the sense of that your discernment of, is that beautiful? Is that something I can attune to and feel more alive? If the answer to that question is yes, then it's a good indicator that there's health going on, that there is not just looks good and feels good, but actually is good. And that's, by the way, another one of those triples. So. There's a, there's, a, there's a recognition here that we're looking for a kind of clarity that creates the kind of trust, that creates the kind of basis of choice, process methodology by which the group itself can actually be in discernment in the kinds of ways that result in choices that are actually holistically beneficial for the well-being of the commons. And that frankly, anything short of this is not good enough. Right? And when we're dealing with existential risk, that's basically saying something along the lines of, we're really noticing that this choice is really, really crucial. And therefore our discernment skills are gonna to have to be really, really good to get this right because we only got one shot at this. So let's really freaking pay attention because that's the ethically right thing to do, right? I, I have people who approach me from time to time who are becoming aware of existential risk and they're usually freaking out. And they're basically saying, wow, these are really important issues and they're right now and we have to deal with them really, really fast because that's like an emergency, we gotta deal with it. And it's like, yep, I feel the pressure of that. Believe me, I acutely, really acutely feel the pressure of that. But I also know from the ethics that for choices of high criticality, that it is equally important to be as discerning and in the depths of the discernment and in the depths of the attunement as it is possible to go, to be equal to the choice. Because anything less than that is disrespecting the choice. 
It's disrespecting the significance that the choice had. And by the way, discernment is not fast. So whatever you need to do to get the skills of discernment, do it. And if you've got to basically experience beauty in order for that to happen, then go for it. But in that same way, now use it both as the first thing and the last thing. If the choices you're making don't result in beauty, something's wrong, right? Just flat out, you haven't done it right. So in this sense, it now becomes the case that understanding the relationship between beauty, discernment, truth, trust, and community process and choice is if anything, maybe even more essential than getting the logic right, right? If I don't have the, the, the what question answered, I sure as heck I'm not gonna be able to answer the why question next and to be able to answer the how question at all, right? If I don't have a sense of the why grounded in the what, I'm not gonna have a very good how. And it's basically the response to existential risk will therefore, well, we don't know what to do because we haven't done the discernment to figure out the what yet. And once we learn the discernment about what it is, we can figure out why that matters if we want to, but we're also gonna learn the tools of how to do it. And honestly, this is, this is baked into the nature of being. This isn't something I get to choose. It's about the nature of choice itself. And so in that sense, I'm really, I guess, suggesting that we get very skillful about doubling down around the spaces of create beauty, create nurturance, create the kinds of things that we could say beautiful culture and mean it. And to be in support of that rather than to try to extract from that because, oh, by the way, everybody in the world is trying to figure out how to be a better parasite. That's what capitalism and commercialism is. It's a parasitic process. That's what profit is. So in this sense, you know, we can continue to play games thinking that we have reasons for doing the things that we do, but it, actually that entire notion is ridiculous, right? We've got to get to the point where we understand something about the what from which we move. Understand and, and know the nature of the human. Know the nature of like where your own ground of being comes from so that you have a sense as to what really matters in a sense of values. And these aren't virtual values in the sense of dollars, it's, it's more like sense as in common sense. And so when there's a, there's, there's a notion here in which I personally think that if we're going to deal with existential risk properly, we're gonna to have to develop some real skills at the level of community in these sorts of ways. So yeah, I think beauty is critically important, right? Um, but you know, this particular chain of connections that I just outlined, I personally, I haven't experienced that anywhere. I don't see that in, in philosophy. I don't see it in logic. I don't see it in communities currently. I don't see it anywhere. At this particular point, I feel like I'm a lone wolf in the middle of the wilderness, basically saying, hey, by the way, this place is beautiful. If you can come over here without destroying it, I'd invite you to have a peek, you know? And then maybe we can figure out a way to make the woods like alive, which would be great, you know? It's like my namesake. I really care. No more soapbox. Well, <laughs> well, to the degree I can appreciate the beauty in your expression, then you're not a lone wolf, are you? Not anymore. There's plenty. There's plenty. But I hear you. You know, so I'd like to say one thing, and, and perhaps it might emphasize what I'm presently perceiving to be essential to the 
challenge and ordeal that is perhaps uh, subconsciously felt by those who are, let's say, engaged in the most powerful technological constructions with such massive implication who may not be attending to the basis of their attunement process, who may not be in touch with what it is they really care about, because, and it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a, well, it, in many respects, it's a beautiful paradox, because on the one hand, we have language like dignity, in the sense of birthright, in the sense of, and again, the language of the soul, that it is, I think, in, uh, as, as you mentioned, or intimate an essential quality of the nature of being that we can know valuing, that we can love, that we are involved, that we are that which cares, but to have care, to appreciate beauty, is also to be in touch with the possibility of not meeting a mark one might set for oneself of feeling and seeing or being sometimes punished for caring, sometimes not welcomed by others for various dynamic reasons not welcomed by others to share what one cares about. There is in some sense a the 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 price, the the cost of caring can be perceived to be one of a certain form of loss. And so this also speaks in some sense to the essence of a kind of tragedy. Not tragedy as something ugly, but tragedy as the um, well, I, I almost I don't know if I want to uh, take on the poetic, the poetic task of uh, of 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 putting color to the to the word tragedy right now. We certainly could, of course. We have narratives and we have our we have our stories, and there have been plenty of experiences for me this year and. Um, as we all experience over the course of our lives, which if they aren't metabolized in a certain way, and this is as well, it seems to me, it must be an affordance, a capacity of a healthy culture that thrives to help others develop the capacity to metabolize tragedy not to do it for them, not to take ownership of that process, but in that supportive sense, in that sense of what it is to guide. And by the same token, of course, we can see each other and look to each other as, as guides, as teachers, as friends, as peers who themselves are beautiful and have capacity to orient in a direction of beauty that what others care about matters and that the process of understanding a more whole the whole making of care in some sense can be perceived to be beautiful
but the there is a tremendous challenge to it i i wonder if it's similar in some ways and there's many people there's many reasons why someone might tune out of listening to me talk for instance but i think there is a in this discourse in this conversation there is a a certain kind of weight maybe it's the weight of a key you know that can unlock a way and yet there is a weight and so considering this then and you know this would be an angle on how i see what i felt a dedication to in terms of work in the world it's often a return to the question how can i contribute with others to the creation of contexts where that communicational channel can with more wisdom or come from a, a, a wiser basis of affording an opening and a reciprocal opening of that way of understanding, which makes possible the being together in orientation toward beauty, from beauty in some sort of sense. And um, so anyway, maybe this is, this is me after after sitting here and, and listening and um, and appreciating and valuing very much what you're saying, Forrest, this is an opportunity for me to enter into that process myself and and return to a place in this context where I am here to at least ask some helpful questions. I hear the question of something like, how do we do group process that facilitates discernment and attunement? And yes, that's what, one of the questions. Just yeah. to add one piece on, I it, it's it's something like the I am I am wishing to ask that in a I suppose like some sort of I want to ask that on the pulse of this moment because there's a sense in which I could have asked that question four years ago six years ago there's been lots of learning since then and i'm trying to consider this in the context of the criticality of for instance how you and i how in a broader sense we and there are others who i would step forward for sure into this we what would the because this is what i'm trying to do in some sense i'm trying to create a context where it would be possible for those who are in more of those influential positions when it comes to moving the puck, <laughs> moving the ball on the creation of, for instance, a AGI, how, in, how on the pulse of this moment over the coming year, could we move into that context where those types of people, where those people could be progressively welcomed in to modes of perceiving together in ways that would really afford participating in understanding what it is we're talking about, but also we're sort of pointing at what would then become a basis from which to sort of have discernment about the, you know, also the why and the how. So it's partly a general question, but I am wanting to bring it to the pulse of 
where we are now. We've known each other for a few years now, and and so that's how I'm feeling about it. Well, if I if I hear the question as how do we work with people who are in the space of highly symmetric influence? Either they're really wealthy or they're really famous or they have unusual skills and, 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 and capacities because of whatever reason in technology. And the question being something like, given that many of the people that have through a, a kind of willingness to take whatever extreme measures needed to win at all costs, right? The, the, the people that, 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 that usually find themselves the winner of the game, when there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe even a billion people playing, that, you know, to distinguish oneself out of a million people or out of a billion people is not trivial. That's, a, that's essentially commit life, all process to it. And, you know, naturally a lot of people say, well, I, I don't actually feel that I would be willing to sacrifice everything in order to win. And I, and I actually count that as a, as a sane outcome, a sane choice. You know, if, if, if you're willing to risk your life, you'll achieve things that require that, for example. Um, but on the other hand, if you're willing to risk other people's lives in order to achieve the, that outcome, then I would say there's, there's a problem. Right. That's that's not your that's that those are not your lives to risk for your winning the game. And so, you know, when we're when we're looking at, at, at situations where people have been willing to risk all in order to get ahead, um, there, there, there ends up becoming a kind of uh, means ends paradox that's sort of built in. There's a kind of habit built into that. And so when we're looking at integration of that kind of thing that was. Uh, starting from a position of essentially perfected judgment and converting that to a perspective of attunement and discernment, particularly when the attunement that would, they would be having would be mostly with literally everybody else who, as a result of their actions in one form or another, are actually in pain. Um, I, I'm reminded of a conversation I had, uh, I guess, maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, it doesn't feel, I don't know, it feels like a while. It, it feels like at least months. Um, and it was, it was, it was essentially a gentleman that was approaching a, a wealthy person, you know, in that local community where that, that person also lived, they, you know, they, one was poor and the other was rich and, and the poor person was asking the rich person for, um, proceeds to do a project. Uh, I, I don't remember the specific project, but it was something in the space of like, um, providing food for a, a, a shelter kitchen or something like that. And... There was this wonderful moment in the conversation, and I, 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 was, I was hearing the narrative of the conversation. I wasn't present at the original conversation, but it was essentially, he said, well, I got to the point where I was basically saying, why am I begging you for the money you stole from us? Right? What, what, what gives you the right to even decide that this is or is not a worthwhile thing for which to spend money? It came out of the community. Give it back, right? And... You know, I, I really appreciated the clarity of that remark. I really appreciated it. It was like, that was truth to power. Like there was, there, was, there was a moment of just straight up, no questions asked, this is what's actually going on. 
and so so in that sense when i'm when i'm looking at just the dynamics of resource extraction and actually this is pretty current you know there's the whole ftx thing that just blew up and there's this uh, effective altruism community which was largely a beneficiary of that cryptocurrency dynamic which basically divested what a million people living in middle america who had modest resources and decided that they were going to invest because there was this huge marketing campaign and they lost everything right there's 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 people that are now homeless that wouldn't be homeless because of this scam basically and the, the there was a, this, this sort of whitewashing ethics washing thing that was going on where the proceeds from you know a small portion of the proceeds like one percent of the proceeds along with a whole lot of marketing of I'm giving all of my resources to effective altruism. But of course that doesn't happen. What was actually given was maybe 1%. And that 1% was essentially diverted to, you know, all sorts of projects, some of which, you know, were, were attempting to give resources back to the people. And I, and I noticed, for example, that there's a, there's a dynamic of inefficiency and in extraction, but that there's an even worse dynamic of inefficiency in distribution, right? It's actually, harder from a purely functional logical basis it's actually harder to distribute money evenly than it is to collect it right it's easier to charge taxes than to give a rebate that actually goes back to all of the people that you originally charged taxes from right i mean in one sense you'd say well just do it it's logically just a mirror image and it's like but no in actual practice every single thing ends up diverting it like there's a there's a huge amount of pressure in the system that is in the direction of increasing inequality there's fundamental forces in the market process itself that favor centralization there's fundamental forces in the dynamic of network communication process and the metcalf law kind of dynamics that favor a kind of centralization and so anywhere that you have an extraction process that's wanting efficiency, efficiencies are gonna show up as profits, which themselves are in a sense gonna drive efficiency to be higher, which essentially is gonna increase both the degree to which extraction is happening, but also to the degree to which it's fragile and to the degree to which it's irreversible. So in this sense, there's a, uh, a kind of information loss that's happening in the extraction process and a kind of risk that is being taken on and a kind of cost that is being paid that when you get to distribution turns out to be worse because of all of the dynamics associated with the centralization processes in the first place. So, you know, like you, you, you try to give money to a, uh, an organization, I'm going to pick on Red Cross because they deserve it. There's a sense in which, you know, for every hundred dollars that I give to the Red Cross, 95 of them is just going to go to the organization for bureaucratic maintenance you know, advertising how great the Red Cross is. It didn't used to be bad, but over time, function creep happens. Any large organization that's in the form of an institution rather than a community is inevitably gonna rot. And so you just gotta wait long enough and it will for sure happen, right? So, so then you have a situation of a community that has, I'm sorry, an institution that has diverted 95% of the incoming proceeds to not the function of distribution to the places that it needs it, but to internal organizations. So, okay, let's be super charitable and decide that, well, let's see, they spent all that money on organization. I'll bet that organization is super tight, super good, that that 5% that, that gets through to 
the community for which that, you know, they're, they're trying to do relief for hunger or, or, you know, recovery after a tsunami or something, right? And there's a, there's a situation where there's, there's, there's 5% of the money, $5 shows up on the ground. But then you discover that the local warlord takes it or it gets diverted into uh, a, a miscellaneous project that actually has no impact on the well-being of the people that are there. In other words, the distribution efficiency of that process is actually as if it was without any governance at all. None of the organizational capacities of the 95% that were diverted into Red Cross as the organization actually got applied to figuring out the best way to use the 5% that got through. All right. So in this sense, I'm just pointing out that integration of highly asymmetric people into a process of trying to give back to the community is going to be coming from such a uh, an overload of judgment process, of extractive process, that transforming that into um, distribution process in some sort of holistic sense is a very non-trivial problem. Like, like extremely non-trivial, like, like to the point of it's actually easier to focus on the people that are not the person that was the extraction focus, like the, 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 the ultimate winner, but um, on the, 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 the three or four tiers of people around them, right? Who have essentially gotten sucked into this system, but at least understand it somewhat well, although they don't, they, they benefit from it somewhat, but only, you know, fractionally compared to the, the winner takes all person, right? So in this sense, um, I haven't really been trying to solve the problem of resource distribution because I recognize that if you're solving it at that level, it's already too late. You have to solve it at the level of not extracting the resources in the first place. If you cut the tree down, if it's a hundred year old tree, planting a sapling next to it is not a replacement for that tree. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way, right? Planting a hundred saplings isn't even enough because, you know, let's let's look at it from the point of view of uh, carbon exposure, for example. It's a little known thing, but the first sixteen to twenty-five years, the sapling is actually carbon positive. It's not carbon negative. There's more carbon being emitted by the sapling than the sapling is absorbing. Um, it sounds counterintuitive, but the tree itself isn't actually absorbing carbon into the wood until it's relatively mature, right? So in that particular sense, the saplings aren't the equivalent of the tree functionally and even this one metric, right? It certainly isn't equivalent in terms of shelter for birds or squirrels or uh, providing shade or preventing the, grind, the ground from drying out. So the mycelia and the grass and all the rest of this sort of stuff is eroding because it's a dust bowl instead of, you know, actually like, you know, humus and stuff, right? So. There's a sense here in which if you're doing extraction and you're taking something from an embodied state into a virtualized state, a fungible state, you've already lost the thing that is the most valued. So in that sense, rather than trying to convince the person that has decided to invest themselves into perfected extraction technique, when at all costs, including the cost of embodiment, and I'm going to want to look at the rest of the community, particularly the people that are in the penumbra of the winner takes all person, and basically say, first of all, we got to have like a, a come home to Jesus moment and really describe fundamentally what is needed in order to create a healthy world that's not an institution. 
because most of the people that are caught into that dynamic are doing so because they feel trapped. They feel like because of rules for ruler dynamics that they don't have an option to even participate in the community that you just invited this one rich Mongol person to. So in that particular sense, I'm saying the invitation is already corrupt. It's already too narrow, right? You wanna invite literally everybody else. And in that particular sense, provide the hope to them, the genuine hope that there's a better way. And that better way is through the vehicles of attunement and sovereignty and discernment rather than through extraction, judgment, and abstraction from the, the embodied into the virtual, from the, from the in place into the fungible. You know, anytime we make a marketplace, we're basically turning it something that was um, available to the community as the commons and into something which was uh, essentially now under the control or domestication of, 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 of some individual that has decided that they've figured out a way through the gatekeeping and the rate seeking, the rent seeking to essentially develop for themselves a position where they win and everyone else loses. So it, in, in this sense, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I wanna be discerning about the invitations. I wanna be discerning about what it means to issue an invitation, to be discerning about the kinds of things for which I would respond to. Like, for example, I'm wanting to, to, to in a sense, evaluate is the community itself a capable steward of the resources with which it would be entrusted. Like, I, I, let, let me just switch gears, like just, just to present it from the point of view of the person who would potentially be the donor. Like say, for example, you issued an invitation to someone who for whatever reason, maybe they had an ayahuasca experience and all of a sudden I actually saw, wow, I've been living my life in a way that is really pretty fucked up. I actually wanna turn this around and maybe they're actually sincere, okay? That's a discernment in itself. They may be sincere. Do they have the skills? Probably not. Can we give them the skills? We'll take a while. Will they be patient enough? Probably not because they're used to getting everything really fast. Now all of a sudden it's gonna say, well, it's gonna take you at least five years to learn how to actually be a member of community, let alone figure out how to do discernment in the space of distribution. All right, let's skip all that and, and say all that has happened, okay? We now have a person who both A, has resources, and B, has a real sense of willingness, skillfulness, and availability to contribute those in the ways that will actually be wise, health-inducing, um, quality of life-inducing, and all the rest of the stuff that we would call goodness, right? That the wisdom was embodied in the state. Under those circumstances, it now all of a sudden becomes a discerning question on their part. Is the community healthy enough? Is the social matrix of the organization of how they make choices with each other in a holistic distributed sense, is that actually coherent enough that even if I were to give all the value to the community, could the community be a steward of it? I have seen far too often people with great intentions give to a community that has great intentions and have the community basically discover that they get caught in their own ego games and end up fittering away the value like that aforementioned Red Cross, right? Which I believe maybe 50 years ago 
was populated with truly well-intentioned people who actually knew what they were doing, right? But in successive generations, less and less of that happens. And eventually you end up with people who aren't so skillful. But, but the notion is, is that at some point or another, the person that's providing money to the Red Cross is making an evaluation. Can the Red Cross receive this and be a steward of the value in the sense that they're gonna move it from virtualized into embodied in a way that is genuinely wise and healthy. And that basically means that I'm now vetting the community. Is the community sophisticated enough in its discernments, in its, not judgments, but attunements, right? Is it holistic enough in its value system that if I were to give it a billion dollars, that it would actually be able to receive that without self-destructing, okay? Um, this might sound really like just incredibly silly, but I have turned down grants, right? I've had people offer me tremendous amounts of, hey, whatever you want, we'll give you the resources. And it's like, well, you know, I can believe in myself as a single individual, but I'm looking around at the people around me and most of what I'm seeing are ego games. I'm gonna get eaten by parasites and sharks. Don't give me any money. I don't wanna be a target, okay? This has happened, okay? So, so in this particular sense, unless I was in a situation where there was an invitation along the lines of, let's join something that actually makes sense. Let's be part of something where the skills that are, that are needful are embodied at such a level that I could basically say in full faith and confidence, we as the community are truly ready. Because I'm not gonna ask the question of, give me a billion dollars to save the rainforest unless we're ready to actually do that and can show credibly that we have like the skills and the embodiments necessary to be able to take on a task like that because distribution of resources is really fucking hard. So then I look at things like project governance and what kinds of communication paths like EGP and all the rest of that stuff that I spent years working on to try to get to a point where I could certify that yes, for sure, this technique will actually work. And here's how we can know. And here's how we can know that we're asking the right questions. And how we can know that the questions that we're asking, that we know that we know that we're asking the right questions. And we're not guessing here, we actually have real embodied understanding of this, right? At that particular point, we're now in a position where issuing an invitation to someone who is highly asymmetric is actually viable, right? Prior to that, I'm saying this is a no contest. It's like, there's no way that's gonna work, right? You know, so, so look at all the things I'm assuming. I'm assuming that the, that, the, that the person that has the resources has gone through like a real change of heart, has the skills, has the embodiment, all the rest of that. And that there's a community at, 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 a, at a point that can actually be skillful enough to hold all of that. These are really high bars. Now, are they achievable? Of course they are. Is it worth doing? Yeah, it's the only thing worth doing, right? Anything less than that doesn't even make sense. So in this sense, I'm... I'm speaking very specifically about certain levels of how. If we try to go for that bar on the first shot, probably gonna miss. So what do we do instead? Get the people who are a little bit lower on the tier of extraction, who are essentially the engineers that are in service to the venture capitalists or the, the people who are effectively, because they have been receiving this utopian marketing from some person high up, that they've gotten into a position where they believe the rhetoric because they drank the Kool-Aid. Right? Maybe they're a little bit autistic. 
and don't necessarily know how to recognize narcissism. Wow, that describes a fairly substantial portion of the entire pool of engineers, right? Don't necessarily know how to do defense against marketing because they don't even recognize it as that. They've in a sense been shoehorned into a role that they didn't wanna be a part of and took advantage of the fact that most of these people do genuinely care and do have the skills, but they've been plugged into a system for which they can't do the things that are actually really helpful. They can only do the things for which they can get paid, which isn't enough. So in this sense, I'm thinking, rather than doing the ultra hard thing first, let's get good at doing things that work at all. Find the people that are the second and third and fourth tier down. Get to the people that are on the margins, the kind of people that have unique perspectives. I would like to number myself among those that, that could essentially provide insight into the ways of doing the hard things because the hard things are the things we need to do. Um, I know this isn't necessarily a nice answer. Let me give you some more specific things about the, the how. Um, group process doesn't have to involve conflict to become healthy. You can use curiosity and enthusiasm to get through the things where conflict would normally be involved. Totally. Get to the place where, um, like there's this thing called uh, uh, nonviolent communication. They have these four principles upon which that means. There's two missing, okay? There's no stage in the four um, principles of nonviolent communication which allows for a question sincerely asked or appreciation sincerely given, okay? Mm -hmm. Add those in. That makes it complete. Um, the, the, the notion of like I, I talked about curiosity and enthusiasm as a primary aspect of relationship. Think of that as an attunement thing, as an attunement exercise, as essentially a searching for beauty. When I'm asking a question and I'm doing so with enthusiasm, it's the enthusiasm of really wanting to know what the person says. I wanna know what you think because to some extent, I just am curious about that because I can't find out any other way. Like, how can we discover the beauty of one another unless we ask the question sincerely? I'm, I'm mentioning this specifically because in the last few weeks, particularly, it happens to be the case that in my life, I've been asked a lot of questions, but most of them are, are as soon as I try to answer the question, I get interrupted and then told something. It's like, I don't, I, it, let me ask a question first. I want to encounter you, not be like rammed into by you. I'm not saying this to you personally. I'm saying this just in general, right? Yeah. That, that in so many conversations, the person that we're talking to is just waiting for the moment to say what they're going to say. Where's the curiosity and the enthusiasm that's building rather than judging? All right. I have just said a whole bunch of stuff. I'm actually way past my time. Um, I hope that that was helpful to you. I know it's heavy, but on the other hand, when you ask questions, I'm taking them as I'm really asking. And so therefore I really answer. Well, I appreciate that. And I know you do have to go. And there's a lot here that I believe is profoundly valuable and certainly will be to many people who listen and participate in this project and more broadly. For sure, send people links to, to the website. There's a lot of content there that backs all this up. Uh, need to get the word out somehow or another. Of course. All right, Forrest, thank you, brother. Good to see you as always. Much appreciate. Thank you for your time. 
thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the journey. You can visit voicecraft.io to find out more about this project, the network, the mailing list, opportunities to participate, upcoming courses in the Voicecraft Academy, as well as access the show notes for this episode. That's voicecraft.io. And thank you as always to the patrons of the podcast at patreon.com voicecraft. That's where you can pledge a small amount each month to support this work.